welcome to Don't Pee on Your Leg and Other Scientific Misconceptions, where every week we discuss some scientific misconceptions with the hope of you learning something you didn't already know about the world. I'm here with my co-host, Margaret, bring it all home, Hanslick Burton. And I'm here with my co-host, Camden, there's no way that shoe's going to fit me, Hanslick Burton. And joining us as our co-host this episode and guest, Peter... It's too late to say I'm sorry, Baki. Ooh. <laughs> hello, hello. Thank you. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the show. show. I've got a lovesick tale to tell to you, though it ain't no pair of mine. It's about a girl. Peter, what song was that? You picked it out this week. That was My Sweetie Went Away by Bessie Smith. And why'd you, why'd you pick that one? of the blues. Thank um, you. Yeah, I picked it because when you said it had to be public domain, <laughs> uh, my mind went to the earliest recorded music, which is the blues. Nice. Thank you. Good choice. Since this podcast is still a little new, we thought we would briefly introduce ourselves. I'm Camden. I'm a high school life science teacher in... Seattle, Washington. Woo! <laughs> oh, Peter, who are you? Um, my name is Peter Bakke. I also work with Camden as a high school teacher. I teach physics. Go Spartans. And I'm Margaret. I work as an educator at an aquarium. Our first segment every week is where we share something we're excited about. Uh, Margaret, what are you excited about this week? Well, I am really excited because my mom was just sworn into public office yesterday, so I'm very, very excited. It was a hard-fought campaign, and uh, yeah, getting to see your own mom get sworn in to serve the public good was very exciting, very empowering, I'm very proud of her. That's awesome. Peter, what are you excited about this week? Um, I am excited about jujitsu. Um <laughs> It is close to the beginning of the new year, um, and you know, you sometimes people make resolutions. Mm -hmm. I don't do resolutions as much as take an opportunity to uh, reflect and maybe think of one new fun thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I've always been interested in doing like a solo martial art um, or something that's not quite as team oriented, mm -hmm. and I want to try it out. Still haven't done it yet, but <laughs> uh, that is something I'm, I'm excited about. Yeah. That's awesome. Cameron, what are you excited about? Um, well, as this segment has become for me, I always like to do a, like, down the rabbit hole from our last week's episode. Mm -hmm. It's um, like a segment within a segment. It is. And now I'm realizing this wasn't, this is a down the rabbit hole of a conversation that didn't happen on air. Uh, oh, insider. Peter actually already knows about this a little bit. I was talking to someone recently, a retired biology teacher, about um, chemotherapy and how mustard gas was derived from chemotherapy. Oh, yeah. Um, or flip Chem that and reverse it. Yeah. Uh, that So scientists noted that um, victims of mustard gas poisoning in World War I uh, actually had really suppressed white blood cell counts. Mm -hmm. um, and so in during the outbreak of the Second World War, this was just like a note left over, 
the Second World War, scientists were trying to see, like, how do we make sure, like, we don't have, like, mustard gas be an issue in the future? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the scientists, or actually two of them, Louis Goldman and Alfred Gilman, um, wondered actually, like, as, like, a side noticing, like, hey, if this lowers white blood cell counts, could this actually be used to cure lymphoma, which they know that that um, attacked white blood cells. So in 1942, they actually used a derivative of mustard gas that was just straight injected into a patient. Um, And they actually were cured of their lymphoma for six months. Um, Unfortunately, they later (laughs) died died. of mustard gas poisoning. (sighs) Which, yeah, but... This patient had, like, terminal lymphoma. It was late-stage lymphoma, and so it was actually until 1942 they were able to, like, further derive, like, from that, Mm -hmm. like, the exact thing that they found um, to suppress white blood cell counts, and that's actually one of the main chemotherapy uh, agencies today. So So they figured out the right balance. Right, that doesn't get you with mustard gas poisoning. Mm -hmm. It's a key thing you want to hear before you take medicine. Well, how does that excite you? Yeah. Uh, I just, I love, I don't know, rabbit holes always excite me. This is what I do when I, like, realize, I come out of it and I realize I've been, like, two hours on, like, the Wikipedia trip. You realize you missed work for a week. (laughs) My phone has, like, 50 missed calls. Yeah. They're like, Eureka! I didn't hear, I know you guys are mad at me, but the guy who invented um, artificial fertilizers is also a war criminal. Mm. That was part of this one. Oh, my gosh. Um, a lot of listeners figure that one out, though. Fritz Haber, not a good dude. Especially not for, well, really everybody. Yeah, artificial fertilizers, big climate change agent. Oops. Yeah. 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 So, let's head into our main segment of the show, the misconceptions. Every week, we'll each bring a new scientific misconception to share, explain, and discuss. Uh, as a note, each co-host researches their misconception independently, brings it to the podcast, no one else here has actually heard of it. Uh, this is primarily. Well, we've heard of it. We haven't heard maybe who's not. doing what. We don't. Maybe we've never heard of this. Okay. All right, all right. That's true. Mm-hmm. Um, primarily, this is to help us make it feel more like a discussion where we don't feel like we need to know everything about it and we can learn alongside of our viewers, listeners, whatever <laughs> way you are ingesting <laughs> my words. Uh, so we're actually going to decide randomly last time we had a dice what's a good way to decide it this time we're looking around the room um like this is a see a jar room. of peanut butter okay who can eat the jar of peanut butter um, first um who wants to go first oh we're gonna can you describe what you're doing right now we're doing it short straw with sharpies so wait just pick one trust me Okay. I picked a teal sharpie. I yeah. have a pink sharpie. And I have a blue sharpie. Uh-huh. Blue is the first letter in the alphabet. I'll go first. Okay. That uh, is not how short straws <laughs> works. Uh, we're going to let the listener be the judge of that. <laughs> that is not... All right. All right go for it. All right, y'all. Uh, my misconception this week is all about taste buds. Ooh. Margaret, Peter, where are your taste buds? Uh, your tongue. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And where, how are those, like, partitioned in your tongue, on your tongue? Do you want me to say what I think is right, or do you want me to say what I think the misconception is? Mm. What have you heard, like, throughout your life, I guess? 
I've heard, and maybe pretty you've heard this too, that there are like mm-hmm. separate spots on your tongue for different tastes. So like if you put something on like, I don't know, the left part of your tongue, then that's like the sour receptor. Mm-hmm. But then if you put it on the right side, it's like the sweet one or the, you know, bitter or whatever. But I, I don't think that's right. Have you heard that too? I've heard that. Um, yeah, I, I grew up, I think it was kindergarten, where we even drew the tongue mm-hmm. and, you know, cut it into quadrants or little spots and I remember this the front was sweet mm-hmm. the back was bitter mm-hmm. right and left maybe like sweet and or salty and sour mm-hmm. yeah it was, I mean it was just laid out mm-hmm. anatomical tongue <laughs> diagram mm-hmm. okay. that's it that's the misconception the misconception was that they're not partitioned no. so yep you guys got it say it ain't so uh it's not so yeah <laughs> but actually Peter did nail the incorrect map though mm-hmm. but well done. Um, yeah. Sticky. Those yeah. Are sticky. Yeah. They are very sticky. Mm. There's a lot of science there. Um, yeah. Sweet at the front, salt front side, sour back side, and then bitter at the very back. Mm. Um, which actually I found sort of reassuring. So this came from, a lot of it's been credited to a German scientist in the 1900s uh, where he actually had participants just taste like something sour, something bitter. Something sweet, and just say, like, where in your tongue were you, like, tasting this? Where did you feel this sensation of, like, taste? Mm-hmm. Um, it is, in his report, he actually, to his credit, says, it seems like there may be more sensitive regions, but that this is not necessarily where, it, the only place you taste it. Mm-hmm. So, but then later, there was a Harvard um, doctor who actually took that, actually assigned, like, numerical values to it, and then just ran with it, and, like, yep, this is... This is the map. Here we go. Okay, that makes a lot of sense because I feel that this could be easily disproved by just, like, taking sugar and putting it on, like, the a sour, like, the sour part of your tongue, and you can still taste that it's sweet. Mm-hmm. But if, if the original thought was you can better pick up those tastes on these certain parts of your tongue, then that makes a little bit more sense in terms of, like, how that idea was developed. Mm-hmm. Seems like the more we learn is that senses are interconnected. And like, I, you can imagine just taking out your tongue and putting sugar or sour somewhere and not even, like, hardly tasting anything. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I don't know, maybe it's because of the saliva or because mm-hmm. of the scent going up into your nose. Mm-hmm. But I feel like just isolating one part of your tongue doesn't make a whole lot of sense, no pun intended, for, <laughs> for distinguishing different... Mm-hmm. There are other factors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 And it is such a pervasive myth that even in this Yale College report I read, it talked about how you almost can't ask people where they sense it because already you've like added some bias into like, oh, I must sense it somewhere. Mm-hmm. That's like, I must be sensing it in one spot, but really there are so many factors that go into it. And it's also just like, where's the food in your mouth? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and this was interesting. I didn't go down this rabbit hole. Maybe that's for next week. Mm-hmm. Of That there are these like four distinct tastes, but there's a pretty like agreed upon one, which is umami, which mm-hmm. is like a pretty mushrooms. like... Mushrooms. Is that like the classic? Well, like, yeah. Savory. MSG. MSG. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah said it's like really tied to glutamate, but yeah, that one makes mm-hmm. sense with like... Think, yeah, I think there's a lot of glutamates in mushrooms. Yeah. Well, I just also remember that this week at Trader Joe's, they were selling a new mommy blend, and it was like powdered mushroom. Mm-hmm. Oh. Okay. Shout out to Trader Joe's. Sponsor us. Please. Um, and now that they're saying there's even a... Um, t- there are taste receptors for fat. Mouthfeel. Mm-hmm. 
Seven receptors mouthfeel. <laughs> Sweet. Well, and fat. Chunky yeah. mouthfeel. But yeah, fat is like, that's like sort of the biggest one I was reading, like the current research is like, what are receptors for fat? Mm-hmm. Which now I think about it, like, that makes sense. I don't know if I'd describe fat as any of the five tastes. Um, so, but related to that is, unfortunately, or fortunately, there is no map for it. You have taste buds all over your tongue, and every taste bud, um, one report that from the same uh, Yale College citation was that there's about a fifth, there's 50 to 150 receptors for each taste on, in a taste bud. So each cell has potentially somewhere around like 750 if there are five tastes. Mm-hmm. 900, however many tastes we actually think are distinct mm. um, in a cell um, that tastes all of those things. Mm-hmm. And so specifically when you're tasting sugar, your receptor is actually like receiving that that's, form of sugar. That's what I was wondering, and maybe it's okay if you don't know the cell biology, but yeah, how many receptors do they think there are now? Because mm-hmm. they are actually binding with chemicals. Right. So. You're saying that like a sour receptor would be binding with these acidic, mm-hmm. and there are lots of different acids. So I just wonder how that would work. That's a good point. My my thinking too is it said like very classically it it'll you know fit with sugar, and I thought well sucrose and dextrose and fructose mm-hmm. like they must have each one. They're all sort of different shapes. Hmm. Um, it's a good question. Probably goes down the rabbit hole for all of those. I don't know. More to learn. More mm-hmm. to learn. So if I have a map of the tongue on my wall, tacked up, and, Above color, your bed. and color-coded, what should I do? Burn um, it. Burn it is one option. <laughs> Lick it. <laughs> so ironically, this, this, uh, tra- uh, what's that? Tragic irony? Uh-huh. For our literature people out there. Um, so, the 50 to 150 receptors thing actually turns out to be just true of all the different distinct tastes per bud. So you might have 50 of each or 150 of each on each taste bud. And that comes into play my final point, which is there are super tasters. Mm. Mm. And Peter, you're a biology teacher, so I'm sure you've heard of super tasters before. Can you tell us a little bit about how you find out if you are one? Yes. I think there's only one good way. Um, I did this in my biology class. Well, not the really good way, but you give a piece of paper that has, is it PCC? Is it? PTC, mm-hmm. a bitter substance, and that's one way you could say, oh, that tastes really bad to me. But you don't really know if you're a super taster until you do a genetic test. Is that right? That is true. Mm-hmm. There is a distinct gene for that. And I also learned that you can, this sounds super fun, I wish we had done it. I've seen it before, but I haven't done it to my own tongue. You can take like, you know those dum-dum like suckers? Mm-hmm. Um, and just like or any colorful sucker that has a dye in it, like smear it all over your tongue. And then you stick one of those like paper, like, you know, like a three punch paper, the holes. Three hole punch? Three like hole like punch. an actual hole? Yeah, you okay. rip it and then you fix it with three hole punch sticker. Oh, the the, <laughs> the little circles that you stick yeah. to your paper. It's yeah, essentially a quadrat, like you would use in like, you know, an environmental study. Throw a hula hoop. Yeah, you throw it on your tongue, <laughs> and wherever it lands is a random sample of taste buds, mm-hmm. and you can actually count them once you've, like, dyed it, like, blue in or something. In a mirror? Oh. 
You do it in a mirror to have a friend. Like a best friend. Like a good friend. Mm -hmm. It's not like your underwear. You could probably No, just but have I'm just saying that's a very You can see your taste buds through the naked eye. Uh, yeah, I wonder how like how many how many buds are on like a Open your mouth, Kevin. Let me see. Is it I don't really know what I'm looking for. I mean, really damage tongue. tongue. Here. Here's is an a, image. Is a bud it's great radio. a cell? <laughs> a collection of cells? That's a great question. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Intracellular. I think a bud is a what is that like pap papillae? You know, uh -huh. like in your like skin, like little like we're getting we're getting real far into it. <laughs> anyway. We've already lost half can, our listeners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like they're okay. So anyway, you can count that way. But because it is one gene tied to being a super taster and having more receptors, you can actually see like this show up in the general population of like, you know, classic biology example of like twenty five percent of people are super tasters, mm. fifty percent of people are like medium tasters, and then there's like 25% of people just don't taste it as bitter at all. It's just like someone stuck paper on your tongue. Mm -hmm. um, which I guess isn't true, like dominant, recessive. That's like an intermediate trait. Mm -hmm. Does that, this might be a dumb question, but. No dumb questions. Only... Don't pee in your leg. Okay, great. Does that, does super taster versus not super taster have anything to do with like the cilantro versus soap mm -hmm. thing? Mm. Does that, because I know some people can taste the actual cilantro and some people. When they taste it, interpret it as like soap. Hmm. Are you googling that right now? I've heard that. Um, I hate cilantro.com as a result. I'm not going to do that to our listeners because <laughs> that has not been vetted. Um, <laughs> I might come back down the rabbit hole next episode on that. If it was .org, we might. It might be a different. Yeah. Story. Oh, if it's .gov for sure. <laughs> I hate cilantro.gov. <laughs> we'd be on it. I want that. We'd be reading it aloud. <laughs> um, so that's why your taste buds are all over your mouth, and the receptors for each taste are all over your mouth, too. Wow. Thank you. Uh, Soft clapping. Teal and pink were left, which means... I had pink. Pink is up next. Okay. Mark is that it. okay, Peter? Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So mine is pretty technical. <clears throat> My misconception has to do with animals. It has to do with animals that a lot of people think live in the same place, but really don't live anywhere near each other. Can anyone guess what animal I'm talking oh. about? Peter has his hand up. Oh. Yes. Mr. Baki, go ahead. Okay. There's, can I give more than one guess? Yep. Okay. No more than five. Kindergarten. I remember a lot of people thought that lions and tigers live in the same area. It's not that, but okay. I love where your head's at. Yeah. Okay. The other one? Okay, go ahead. Okay, Sorry. I'm the go kid ahead. that takes over the class. Stegosaurus and T-Rex. What? That's a real, are you talking about like time periods? Yeah. I didn't mean like temporarily in the same oh, okay. place, but... You go back to Mr. Baki. <laughs> okay, humans and dinosaurs. Yeah. That's what you're going to. Well, that's a bit... Oh, boy. Um, Birds and rabbits? Oh. Nope, they do live together. Oh. Uh, I get this one mixed up all the time between the, the ones with spots. Cheetahs, leopards, and jaguars. Nope, not oh. that way. Can you give us like a animal kingdom? Um, one is a mammal, one is a bird. That might give it away. Platypus and eagles. Nope. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, the misconception is that they live in the they, same place. They, people think they live in the same place. And they do not but live in the don't. same place. And a, one's a mammal. And one's a bird. And one's a bird. Pandas and koalas. Nope. <gasps> Does anyone think that? Uh. It's okay um, if you do. We'll cover that. Okay. In a it's not technical if it's 
South Pole, North Pole, penguins, and polar bears. Yes! Did you say one was a marsupial? Oh, no. you said mammal. <laughs> Don't you know penguins are a little known marsupial? That's why I said koala. And polar bears. Penguins and polar bears. I'm sure people are wondering why I wasn't naming oh. birds. I've heard of this misconception. You have? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. So yeah, the misconception is a lot of people believe that penguins and polar bears live in the same areas because, well, there's a couple different reasons why I think this misconception exists. One is that polar bears and several species of penguins live in cold weather climates. Sure. So, mm. you know, you see a polar bear on a National Geographic special surrounded by snow. You see a penguin colony surrounded by snow. You think, why not? Snow is snow. Snow is snow. snow. snow, snow. snow. Um, another reason is holiday decorations. We just came out of the holiday season. Uh, I, I saw a lot of those big, you know, like lawn ornaments that like move and have lights and are like inflatable. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. With like a polar bear and little penguins right. on the side. Oh. Um, and then ads. Like today I watched a commercial by Coca Cola. Coca Cola. That had, it was in 2006. I didn't remember this one, but maybe you all do. Is it in the there was bargaining. Were they sliding? There was some sliding involved. Mm -hmm. um, it was like this polar That's bear family exactly. that peered over a cliff and they saw all these penguins partying and having a good time. They don't party. That's the misconception. <laughs> they don't party. It's too cold. Um, but then the polar bear cub slides down the mm -hmm. cliff there accidentally. Was the bargaining. It's adorable. And lands in the middle of the party and all the penguins stop and then one penguin offers the polar bear cub. Oh, now I want a coat. You're on the wrong damn pole. <laughs> <laughs> but in reality, real. as Peter mentioned, the they are nowhere near each other. Nowhere near each other. Um, unless that polar bear cub slid all the way from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere, there's no way they would. Unless there's a flat earth. Oh my gosh. That could happen. Oh boy. Um, so polar bears are only found in the northern hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And penguins are only found in the southern hemisphere. Okay. So polar bears are found in the Arctic or in the Arctic Circle, which is the northernmost part of the Earth around the North Pole. Like polar bears are found in parts of Alaska and Canada and Greenland and Norway and Russia. Mm -hmm. It's nice and cold up there in the north. Did not know they were in Norway. Yes. <clears throat> I did not either until today. Wow. But um, penguins are not found in those areas at all. Um, Penguins live in the southern hemisphere, but they don't necessarily live at the South Pole because there are warm weather species what? of penguins. I know. We'll get into that in a second. Um, I used to work at a zoo that had penguins, both warm weather and cold weather. And the question I got a lot was, do polar bears eat penguins? Because a lot of people, if they assume, if they assume that polar bears and penguins live together, they assume that polar bears eat penguins, which if they did live together, I think that would be a reasonable Too assumption. Problematic. Tasty treat. Wait, a little tasty. A little ice treat. Flightless treat. Um, but nope. Penguins' main predators include orca, whales. Ooh, ooh. Yes. Uh, leopard seals. Leopard <laughs> seals, if they're in that part of the world. Uh huh. Anybody else? I don't. I don't know if people eat, eat penguins. That's a good question. Wait, it's another animal. Oh boy. They're orcas. Only. Orcas, leopard seals. Close, close, not seals, but sea lions. Sea lions, yes. Eagles, oh. gulls. What? And I learned about a new type of predatory seabird today. It's called a skua. Mm. S K U A. I YouTubed that and watched one eat 
two live penguin chicks whole. Wow. So part of my heart died. <laughs> um, but those are their those are their predators. Polar bears, on the other hand, eat a lot of different things. Several types of seals. Um, they'll eat walruses, normally carcasses of walruses. Belugas, same thing. Probably not catching a beluga, but they'll eat their carcasses. Other whale carcasses. And sometimes other food sources like vegetation if it's available and they're hungry. So no penguins on a polar bear's menu. Yeah. But there are, as I said, warm weather and cold weather penguins. There are 18 species of penguins in the world. Half of them live in cold weather and half of them live in warm weather. The forgotten half. Yeah, the forgotten yeah. half, the forgotten warm ones. Mm. Um, what species of penguins can you all name? Let's go back and forth. Okay. Alphabetically. Oh boy. <laughs> Adelaide. Oh. Oh. Out the gate. Blue. Emperor. King. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I skipped one. You, you don't have to go on um, alphabetically. Uh, the one that has little... What's that thing that has little fringes on it? Cameron, do you know? No, not yet. It has little, uh, little eye fringes. Rock hoppers? The rock hopper? Mm -hmm. Is that their real name? Mm-hmm. Okay. They're northern and southern rock hoppers. Oh, man, you stop... No, 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 give them both. Uh, Gen two. Gen two. Emperor? Uh-huh. Uh, I'm out. Oh, yeah, that's all I got. Uh, no, I, Where I, did Darwin go? Galapagos. Galapagos. Mm -hmm. uh, that's far. That's pretty far north. Uh huh. Um, I feel like I had one left. Uh, macaroni? Marconi? I think it's actually macaroni, yeah. Okay. I think you're right. Because they also have those little the tufts. Does the macaroni mm -hmm. on that. The okay. Yeah, so there are 18. That was pretty good. There are 18 species of penguins. <laughs> nine are warm water. Um, nine are... Or, I'm sorry, nine are warm climate penguins, nine are cold climate penguins. Even, typically, even the warm climate penguins rely on a cold current. So, for example, Humboldt penguins, which you did oh, not say, rely Humboldt. on the Humboldt current, even though they live in, like, I think, Chile and mm, That nutrient-dense, cold, yeah. up, oh my upwelling. Gosh. It's like David oh. Attenborough. <laughs> <laughs> Watch that. Okay. <laughs> oh, bye, David. <laughs> yeah, there you go. He's busy. He's narrating stuff. Anyway, so to sum up, penguins and polar bears live in very different areas because they have very different needs, and mm -hmm. not all penguins are cold Niche. weather penguins. Wow. Thank you. Mm. Questions? Comments? I, I was wondering, I was thinking while you were talking about northern and southern hemisphere, mm -hmm. it seemed like they could. If you transplanted them, it seems like they could they could exist in the climate. So That's I was wondering true. what kept them separate. Like uh, I know that the polar bear, I think that the polar bear has a common ancestor with the grizzly bear and the brown bear. So mm -hmm. it makes sense that like those those bears, they're kind of just up there, and then they just the range extended into the Arctic. Mm -hmm. But I wonder about. It seems like the range of penguins is bigger, mm -hmm. and I mm -hmm. wonder if they can make it to Ecuador. Why can't they just keep going up California and make it to British Columbia and to the Arctic? That's true. I guess my answer would be like, they don't need to. Mm. Mm. They're they're stable in yeah, the range. Yeah, they got they got uh, the stuff they need where they are. Yeah, I, I think of like, I don't, don't puffins aren't that closely related to no. penguins. No. But a lot of people think I often have to like think back on that mm -hmm. and like ox right? Mm -hmm. They live up here in the Northwest mm -hmm. and they dive in cold water, and they kind of have that coloring. That I think any any 
bird that kind of has what's called counter shading, which is white on the belly, dark on the back. Write that down. Um, that helps them camouflage because if, and, and many animals have this, like dolphins, sharks, all kinds of different animals. But if, if a predator is looking at them from above, their backs will blend in with the ocean. And if they're looking at them from below, their bellies will blend in with the sky. Um, people think they're related, but any, any bird that has that very stark contrast yeah. with the white and the black, I feel like it's easy to confuse with a penguin. Yeah. Mm, well, <laughs> my last note on this is to say that if you love penguins or polar bears or hopefully both, um, they could use your help. So, um, feel free to donate to, there's so many different organizations that help polar bears and so many that help penguins. Um, but see, seek them out, make sure they're reputable, um, but they could really use your donations if you're pledging to do that as part of your New Year's resolution. It's a good cause. Nice. Thank you. All right, Peter. Bring it. It's your turn. All right. Well, first, I want to say thank you so much for having me. I've heard a lot about the podcast, and <laughs> I love the idea as a science teacher um, and just as a, a human. Just love misconceptions. <laughs> Love to hate them, hate to love them. Uh, love talking about science, so I'm really happy to be on. Um, Thanks for great to be on. Yeah. My misconception came about, uh, I've actually been thinking about dogs, and <laughs> in Seattle there are lots of dogs, yeah. um, but really this came up when I was watching a Netflix movie called Mowgli. Oh, and, um, that's been recommended to me and, by Netflix. And I was watching it, and... Um, as you probably know the story of the Jungle Book, Mowgli is raised by wolves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there is something that we, I think, all have learned about wolves and how they interact as a group. Mm -hmm. um, do you know, Think? can you think of where I'm headed with this? Like, pack? Mm -hmm. like what, about, what have you learned about a wolf pack? They hunt together? Mm -hmm. There's like an alpha male? Mm-hmm. <laughs> wolves Not never have no. Um, <laughs> you know, it's this might blow your mind. Did maybe raise human maybe not. We learn that, and it's it's brought out in all sorts of media and analogies. But mm -hmm. the alpha wolf. Mm -hmm. What you know about the alpha is no 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 no. <laughs> Kim wants to cling to this. Not correct. Oh. Ooh. That was a gut punch. <laughs> so let me tell you about wolves. Tell and, me about wolves. And uh, I, I'm just learning about this as well, so I, you know, I'm open to questions that I can't answer. Um, but the history of wolf studies, I mean, I'm super, wolves are one of my favorite animals. I mm -hmm. think just yeah, the mystique that. and um, all this mythology we have around wolves of the, that they hunt together, that they are super smart, that it's hard for humans to even see them. Um, and just our connection with dogs and that they're the wolves are the ancestors or they share a common ancestor. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of human mythology with wolves. And so we think that there is this alpha male. And in Mowgli or the Jungle Book, um, the alpha male misses the kill and then that's, that's the opening for another wolf or Shere Khan or whoever um, to take over the pack. And it's this big moment when he misses the hunt. Mm -hmm. And I think that that happens in probably many other stories. Mm -hmm. Where when, once the alpha male shows he's not dominant, then it's like fair game for any, anyone in the pack. Mm -hmm. um, like Black Panther. Do you mean it's fair game for anyone for to anyone rise up and over, become, right, the become the alpha? Become okay. the alpha. Mm -hmm. um, and there's very, variations of this that are through 
science and through media. Mm -hmm. um, what I was reading about the science is that the people who studied wolves were able to study the most available wolves. Mm -hmm. And as we know, wolves are very difficult to track and sure. to, to observe. I was in the Yukon Territory in 2009, and we saw multiple bears uh, pretty close, and we only ever saw a couple footprints of wolves. And they were like, you're not wow. going to see the wolves. Mm -hmm. They're here, but you're, not, you're hardly ever going to see them. Yeah. Um, in the 20s and 30s, the scientists who were studying wolves were looking at captive wolves. Mm. And another set of studies later, they were looking at wolves on Isle Royale in Michigan. Yeah. Um, these are very contained populations. You imagine if you're studying captive wolves and you're trying to make sense of the social hierarchy, mm -hmm. it would be similar to going to a prison and making sense of the family structure mm -hmm. of humans. Oh, that's um, a very good analogy. So you're seeing these wolves that are not normally together, they're probably in very stressful conditions, mm -hmm. and they're exhibiting behaviors that you're then writing down and describing to the whole species. Mm -hmm. So you see these dominant aggressive behaviors and maybe there's like a an order that changes a lot. Um, one, one wolf is on top one day and then the next it gets taken over. Um, in Isle Royale is similar, there were I think between 25 and 50 wolves on the whole island. So you have a small population, yeah. they might be like inbreeding, they might be resource stressed, um, and so they're making these, they're, they're observing, and they're writing papers and it's spreading, they're saying this is how wolves work, there's a, a, an alpha, and uh, when the opportunity arises, the alpha gets weak, there's another alpha, and it's this shifting structure. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the pervasive understanding about wolves for a long time. Uh, more recently, there have been, I'm not really sure how the studies happened, but they got better understanding of wolves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and what they found is it's not, there's not really that much of an alpha feeling. Um, what they found is it's more simple and normal. There's a family of wolves, mm -hmm. mother and a father, mm -hmm. they're cubs, mm -hmm. and they hunt and grow up together. Cute. Oh. And when the, the cubs get old enough, they interact with another family, mm -hmm. and they split off, and they form their family. Mm -hmm. So what you could call your family alpha, you could call your mom and dad alpha, mm -hmm. male and female. Mm -hmm. It sounds cool, but it's not much different than a normal uh, family structure. So they're like familial packs. Mm -hmm. Most so, generally. Because I think when I think of like in the media, like a pack is just like... Just Eight to, random right. wolves who like, just are like, let's hang out, let's hunt together. <laughs> right. Oh, man. Are and you think, okay? Do you take a break? <laughs> Do we need to take a pause? Yeah, we'll come back tomorrow. If you hear a hard cut in the tape, it's just that we had to go take a breather. Shannon took a quick oh. nap to process <laughs> um, what, what questions do you have so far? Well, I'm wondering, because I feel like that alpha male idea plays a big part in dog training right like oh yeah like you know I've even said like I have a dog at home with my, my parents Oliver who I love very much um and he loves my dad the most well mm -hmm. he doesn't love my dad the most but he respects like he he's more likely to follow his commands, commands than anybody yeah. else mm -hmm. um so we're like oh you're the alpha because he, he follows what you do and what you right. say and things and like I haven't gone through dog training myself, but I thought I understood that, like, you need to make sure you're the alpha and your dog's not the alpha. Right. Um, so is, is that for all of that into... That's exactly where I went next, because mm -hmm. there is so much of 
dog behavior understanding and training are based on this Hierarchy. incorrect understanding of wolves. Mm -hmm. And so you even have, I remember I was I watched the dog whisperer, mm -hmm. I think yeah. it's called, and he's very much like a, you gotta be the leader of the mm -hmm. pack. And um, I was reading more articles as I was preparing for this and more current understanding is that some of these practices are uh, bad for the dog. Mm. You know, you don't let your dog eat before you do. Don't, like, you yeah. have to be, and almost sometimes being somewhat violent or overly dominant towards mm -hmm. your dog because you need to stay the alpha. Mm -hmm. um, and not only are those based on incorrect understanding of wolves, when they've done studies with dogs, they don't even follow wolf hierarchies at all. So wow. they are split. They're technically a different species. And there's been a lot of changes in the genetics and, of course, in the upbringing of dogs. So there's actually an open question of, is there a social hierarchy of dogs? Is it mm -hmm. set? Mm -hmm. um, we don't really know. What I think it's sort of an open scientific question. What we do know about dogs is that they are very much dependent on humans. Mm -hmm. um, and there are some... Between dogs, there are definitely dominant interactions, um, but you can't take a group of dogs and say, this is the alpha, yeah. um, this is the subordinate all the time. And there was, I was getting into Google Scholar, as I do, <laughs> and uh, one paper was saying that uh, dogs, so domesticated dogs, are, could not exist in a pack structure. They are dependent enough and changed enough by human intervention that they're not going to be reproductively successful in a group. Mm. And so you can't, you could not really say that there is a social hierarchy of dogs because that social structure cannot exist on its own. Mm. So they are dependent on humans. And mm. so any, any sort of study of dogs would have to include the human as oh, part, sort of of part of it. Mm -hmm. Not saying you're acting like a dog, but you are the human, you are the source of food and mm somehow related because you've co-evolved mm -hmm. um so it does i think that was interesting because yeah. a lot of what we and you all take care of dogs and i've i've done the thing with dogs where you know you want the dog's not going to pull me like mm -hmm. i'm going to stay in front yeah. of the dog because i have mm -hmm. to and a lot of that's probably based in myth yeah about yeah that. i think of a lot of the things that i have to feel mm -hmm. like i have to be the alpha mm -hmm. i never I, feel that way <laughs> the dog what? when we kim and i babysit dogs a lot and i'm I'm never in charge. Like, <laughs> I always say, Margaret's like not the beta, but like what, whatever like, is the, left. The Charlie. The like, now, well, now you're not allowed to say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can't say that now. Because like, if they want to sleep and like take over the entire bed, that's fine. I'll crawl into like a tiny little ball. I'm not gonna move them. They're perfect. Mm. Um, so I'm learning that I'm right. That's the takeaway I'm getting. Now I'm wondering, like, what what are examples of like? Are there like true alpha social hierarchies? It's a good question. I'm just trying, I'm trying to like mm -hmm. rack my brain during this of like what would be an example of that. Ooh. Yeah. Maybe that's a, that's a down the rabbit hole for next yeah. time. Yeah, I think from what I read, dogs, let's say dogs in a dog park, mm -hmm. would follow, a, you could kind of see a pecking order mm -hmm. yeah. for that day. It may change, but um, there's some hypotheses that it's largely based on age. Um, but there are probably a lot of other things going into play. And you do see, I'm not, I'm not saying that there is no um, Structure. difference in interactions. Like you, if you know dogs, you know that one will sometimes submit. Yeah. And that's normal, normal behavior between animals. Mm -hmm. um, but it's different to, to take that type of interaction and say that there's a social hierarchy. Yeah. And they are so fluid. It makes me think of like, 
the researcher we knew that worked with, like, I forget what I knew you were going to say that, and I couldn't remember the name. It was a certain, was it? It was a species of monkey, I think? Yeah. We'll tell you about it next time. But they tried to map, like, all the, like, they would literally, like, this one that's, like, missing chunk of his ear, and, like, Mm -hmm. mapped everyone it talked to, and every day it was so fluid, and, like... Mm -hmm. Who like and had they the measured most the cortisol and, levels? And, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it made me. That even started making me think of like, what about uncle dogs and cousin dogs? Mm-hmm. Can they be in a pack? Right. Are they less protected? Like some form of altruism? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Wow, Oof. Peter, that's a really good misconception. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. Oh, feel good, guys. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, was great. Yeah, I think there's a lot more. I mean, I, I think yeah. I just scratched the surface because I. I did just do some more research today, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, there's a lot more. As as all of ours, there's a lot more to learn. Yeah, yeah, that was great. Thank you. Mm. Before ending each episode, we thought we would have a short segment sharing something interesting we've read, listened to, watched, or otherwise consumed this week. Um, Margaret, I'm just gonna have you draw the short straw, and you get to go first here. Okay, so. I think I've talked about true crime in the last couple, so today is not about true crime, I promise. It's about a different podcast that I have come to love and be obsessed with. It's called Oh No, Ross and Carrie. Have you heard of this, Peter? No. Kim and Sarah learned about it. Oh no. You've listened to it too, and you like it. it. Um, But it's Ross and Carrie are the the hosts of this. That's how I became a flat earther. No, it's not. It is related kind of to flat earth, um, but they. These hosts, their whole thing is, like, they investigate claims of pseudoscience and the paranormal and spirituality so that you don't have to. That's, I think, part of their tagline. So they go out and they do things like they investigate Scientology by trying to become Scientologists. And they um, investigate, like, flat earth claims by, like, going to these flat earth conferences. They and go on, like, a ghost hunt. Yeah, they go like on, like, paranormal ghost hunts. Like, really anything you can think of that's, like, fringe science or fringe spirituality they try to investigate so like people who think the earth is end or the the world is ending they go investigate um do they always try to infiltrate the group not necessarily that's how they got famous but like they don't always sometimes it's just like they did a ouija board and Mm -hmm. then researched it yeah (laughs) or they went to a ufo convention and they didn't they they try not to lie um so they you know went to all these different talks and things they and they sort of lay low. Yeah, they they laid low and just took notes and everything and, yeah. and asked questions if they had the opportunity. So it's really interesting because it explores all these things that you're like, oh that's such a weird kind of segment of of belief or that's something I'm curious about. Um and not all of them do like not all of them are like things that you're like, oh that's obviously not true. But like for example they went to a, a laughter yoga thing mm-hmm. and they really loved it. They thought it was amazing. I like that too. Um, have you done it? Mm-hmm. When? Yoga. Uh, Whoa. I've now heard about this yes, for the first time. <laughs> I was kidding. <laughs> um, it is, I've done some laughing in yoga. Yeah, it's know. supposed to be really positive. I mean, it's fun. Mm-hmm. You might have played the laughing games where you fake laugh yeah. and then you start really you laughing. It's yeah. kind of like mm-hmm. that. It's a, you do it till, till you fake laugh, you say ha ha, and then you just end up laughing. And yeah. It's good for you. Yeah. Um, but, and the thing I really also love about this podcast is even when they're talking to like, you know, flat earthers or people that believe like that we've had contact with aliens, they never just openly make fun of them. They're always Mm, respectful respectful. and they try to find something good about them. Like, you know, their passion for this subject, things like that. So 
I would highly recommend Oh No, Ross and Carrie as a podcast. Cool. Peter, you want to go next? Yeah. So I've been watching a show called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Uh, if you haven't heard of it, it is a show that's in the 50s or 60s, and it follows a female comic. Um, the actress who plays Mrs. Maisel has won a bunch of, mm-hmm. like, what are the awards? Golden Globes and Emmys, is that a thing? That's yeah, a, yeah, 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 um, that's right. <laughs> And she is excellent. I really like, besides just the smart um, dialogue and the, the dress, like, they're all, they're a really wealthy um, Jewish family and they have amazing outfits. Um, but the feminist lens is great because in that time, and even now, of course, we're in a sexist society, um, and in the comic world, again, then and now, it's super sexist, and so she is smarter than everybody and um, more beautiful than everybody, and she is more confident, and so she uh, she really um, takes over with her personality, and it's excellent, so I would recommend that. It's over for me. It's two seasons. I think we're going for a third. Um, it's over for it's me. O- <laughs> you know when you finish a show, yeah. you feel kind of sad. Yeah. Um, so I've been watching that. And I think that actress, whose name I can't remember, is hosting SNL this oh, Saturday. Cool. Yeah. I had a couple options of things I had consumed. Um, the one I want to go with is the one that I haven't finished yet, but it's really interesting to me, especially from a scientific lens. Uh, it's called It's Alive with Brad. Yes! So, oh my god. Uh, yeah, with us living together, we just always know actually what we've been doing. Um, but... This is a YouTube channel. That's me and Camden, not Camden and Peter. Although you're welcome anytime. Yeah, you can come on over. You have a basement. It's unfinished. Um, it's called It's Alive with Brad. And so his thing is any, anything that is living. So he'll do like Ferment. any Sorry, sort of fermentation of like cheese, like mm, cultured butter. I love fermentation. Um, we just watched one the like other this. day on beer. To things that we definitely know were alive at one point. Like how is sausage made? Mm-hmm. Um, oysters. Like diff- oysters we watched the other night. Like, how do we grow an oyster from a little larva all the way up to mm-hmm. an oyster? Thank you so much for listening today. Before we go, I want to offer our guest Peter a chance to plug anything that he might want to. Peter? Um, I want to plug walking to work. Um, <laughs> walking to work is a, a, something that, I, that you could do that I've been doing. Um, it's been shown to increase your sense of well-being it's good for the environment mm-hmm. so um shout out walking to work you should check it out <laughs> all right we'll check that out at walking to work walking to work.com dot gov dot, dot gov dot net wherever you consume walking to work <laughs> <laughs> you can hear more content like this from our sister wife podcast from U to o hosted by my co-host margaret don't pee on your leg and other scientific misconceptions is a podcast produced by two birds one scone Articles, blog posts, and more about what you can do every day to conserve our environment can be found at www.twobirdsonescone.org. We set up an email account, so if you have scientific misconceptions that you'd like explained, or you'd want to provide feedback to us, please email us at don'tpeeonyourleg at gmail.com. Have a great week! Woo!